place, whatever you're looking at. But John chapter 3, I want to start with a little scripture reading this morning and a prayer before we really dive too far into this lesson. For about the last month, we've been in a sermon series on discipleship. Specifically, what you've heard me ask over and over, who's your one? So we're not just talking about how we can be better disciples, we're talking about how we can make disciples. You see, you'll see it on signs, you'll hear us say it, but our mission statement here is to make, mature, and multiply faithful followers of Jesus. And so, who's your one? That's part of putting strategy behind, uh, you know, putting some movement behind uh, making disciples. And today's a special day because we're going to, Dr. Looney is with us, and I was going to interview him during the sermon portion, but we're just going to unleash him during class and let him go for it. And I think it's going to be rich and filling, and you're going to walk away ready to begin discipling someone. Let me start with John chapter 3. I'm going to read verses 1 and following. There's a Pharisee named Nicodemus, a leader of the Jews. He came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one could do these signs that you do apart from the presence of God. Jesus answered him, Very truly I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God without being born from above. Or some of your versions may say, born again. Nicodemus said to him, How can anyone be born after having grown old? Can one enter a second time into the mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Very truly I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God without being born of water and spirit. Let's pray. Lord, as we come before you on this day, taking communion, we singing these songs, and we're just having this time of fellowship, what a blessing it is to be here. And Lord, I pray right now as we look into your word, as we discuss where to move and where to go from here, we believe that you've called us to have a one, to have someone to disciple. And Lord, I just pray that this morning, that anything that I may say that's not from you, that it'll just fall to the ground, but anything that comes from you, from your word, Father, will be lifted up in our hearts, and that you will mold us and shape us and make us more like you. Lord, we just thank you for this day, and it's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. So about a year ago, maybe about 51 weeks ago, around spring break last year, my brother and his wife were living in the Houston area. So I took my wife and my two kids at the time, they were four years old and one year old, and we traveled all the way to Houston, which was funny because we left at night because we thought they would sleep in the car. Anybody ever done that? And then it doesn't work. So then you just kept them up till like two in the morning, so they're extra tired. So we stayed in Houston for a day, we kind of recovered and we rested and we visited with my brother and his wife and then uh, the next day we had this plan on a Friday, we were going to leave kind of the North Houston area, Conroe area, and travel south to Galveston. Now Dr. Looney's from Tampa Bay, so Galveston may not compare to Tampa Bay, but, but it's the closest thing that we have to a beach, so that's where we went. So we left one morning. Uh, early in the morning, fought through the Houston traffic, made it to Galveston. My kids had never been to the ocean before, so they were really excited. Uh, you know, you can kind of start to smell that smell as you're getting closer. You can see the water. We pulled up to the beach. We parked. My daughter was very excited. She'd never done this before. We walked over. We laid a towel down, I guess because that's what you're supposed to do so you don't get sand everywhere. We put our stuff down, and we walked over to the water. We kind of jogged over there because she was so excited, and I got in, but it's March. It's not summer. It's not, it hasn't been hot. It's been kind of cold. And so the water is freezing cold. 
So I put my foot in, and I thought, no way, and I stepped back out. Now, keep in mind, I have a four-year-old who's so excited to do this, but she's not allowed to go really far out there without me. So she's waiting on me to get into the water, so I step back in, get about ankle deep, and then I'm thinking, still, this is way too cold and uncomfortable. And at this point, my brother is, is with us, and my brother and my daughter are splashing me, and I'm being like the grumpy old man who just drove through Houston traffic, and I'm like, God, stop, and I really was not enjoying it. And this went on for about five or ten minutes. And then finally I realized I have really three options. I can walk away and pout and go back over to that towel and just sit there for the rest of the day and just hope that everybody has a good time. The other option would be to keep doing what I was doing and slowly go further out and just kind of ease into it, which that works. That's a possibility. Or the other option would be to just do what? Just dive in, right? So I waited for a wave to come. I took off running full speed, and I just dove into it. Now, it was really uncomfortable, and I was freezing cold for a little while, but my body finally adjusted. In my opinion, that's the easiest way to do it. Just jump in. Just dive in head first, and you kind of feel that cold water. You feel that rush. But, hey, we had a great day. And I would assume that if I would have walked away and just pouted and done what I'd normally do and just sit down and not made myself uncomfortable and got in the water, my kids wouldn't have had a good day either. But we had a good day because we were just able to just kind of dive in. As we study, we look at the Gospel of John this morning. You know, we've used the Gospel of Luke the last few weeks. We've looked at how Jesus discipled his own disciples. We looked at how Luke wrote Luke and Acts to Theophilus. A few weeks ago, we looked at Acts chapter 11 and how Barnabas had a one, and his one was Saul before he really became Paul. And this morning, we're going to use the Gospel of John as kind of our example text. And hopefully, it'll lead into what Dr. Looney is going to teach us this morning. You know, John, was he's not considered one of the synoptic writers. Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they're the synoptic Gospels because they're so similar to each other. But John writes his Gospel about a generation later. And the way that he writes, the stories that he includes, it's so different than Matthew, Mark, and Luke. So starting with this story here in in John chapter 3 about Nicodemus, which we just started, we read a little bit from just a moment ago, this is not in the other Gospels. And we see how unique it is. We start with this man named Nicodemus, and he comes to Jesus, and he comes to him at nighttime. Now keep in mind, this is the first century. So this is before electricity, there's no street lights, there's no lights to turn on in your house. So when you come to somebody at nighttime in the first century, it's dark. And we can only assume that Nicodemus comes to Jesus at nighttime because why? He doesn't want to be seen. He doesn't want anybody to know that he's talking to Jesus. And he comes to him and he says, we know you're a good teacher because the things that you're doing only... God can do those things, so God must be working through you. So Nicodemus, a religious leader, starts with a compliment, and we don't know what his motives were, but Jesus takes that compliment, and he just dives right in. And he talks about the kingdom of God in verse 3. You know, in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the kingdom of God, or in Matthew, it's the kingdom of heaven. That's kind of Jesus' central message. The kingdom of God is at hand, it's here, but in John... Kingdom language is only used about three times. John's preferred language is life or eternal life. But here Jesus introduces the kingdom of God, what he was ushering in. And he says, you want to be a part of the kingdom of God, you want to see the kingdom of God, you have to be born from above, is what the 
my version says. Some versions say born again. That's probably the more traditional way we read it. You have to be born again. Well, Nicodemus is confused by that. Jesus was a master at having conversations with people. And you see that in John. He can have a conversation about anything, but he can make these spiritual statements and take the conversation to a different level and have a spiritual conversation. But you see throughout John is when Jesus makes, uh, makes a turn in the conversation to a spiritual conversation, often those he's talking to are kind of confused and misinterpret. So Jesus speaks from above, but people interpret from below. So Nicodemus is confused and he says, well, how can I be born again? You know, you can't walk back into your mother's womb and be born again. And, and mothers, you're thinking, no, we don't want to do that. You know, it's just kind of this weird text. And then Jesus continues to talk, and he talks about the Spirit, you know, kind of like the wind. You have to be born of the water and the Spirit, introducing certain concepts to Nicodemus that he doesn't quite understand. And then Jesus continues his teaching, and then at some point, if you have red letters in your Bible, you know, there's a point in John chapter 3 where we don't know where Jesus stops talking and John starts his commentary But then Jesus or John's commentary, they begin talking about darkness and light. And those who live in darkness, they don't want to step into the light because they don't want their deeds to be exposed. Well, that's done on purpose because Nicodemus comes to Jesus at nighttime. He comes to Jesus in the darkness. And then we don't really know what happens with the rest of the interaction. We assume that Nicodemus goes home, maybe thinks about it, goes to bed, goes about his business. But he's intrigued. He's had this conversation, and Nicodemus is interested in Jesus. So much so that as you kind of fast forward through John, you get to John chapter 7, towards the end of John chapter 7. They're discussing, the religious leaders are discussing, what do we need to do with this man named Jesus? And guess who speaks up in defense of Jesus? Nicodemus. And Nicodemus is blasted because he defends Jesus, but still there's something there. There's something there that Nicodemus decides to defend Jesus. And then by the time we get to chapter 19, after the death on the cross, somebody's going to bury the body of Jesus, and there's two men, and one of the two men, guess who? Nicodemus. To bury Jesus the way they buried him would have been expensive and probably public. So by this point, by the time we get to John chapter 19, it seems like Nicodemus has really taken a turn towards Jesus. He still cares about Jesus. He's still intrigued by him. And who knows, maybe he's a follower. Maybe this is his way of stepping into the light, and he's willing to bury Jesus. We don't really know. John just kind of gives us these little teasers to show us that Nicodemus comes along gradually. So if Nicodemus were to travel to Galveston, Texas in March, and the water's cold, he's not going to dive in. But he's not going to walk away either. He's just going to kind of ease into it. And that's painful, but that works. It's possible. I don't know who your one is, who God has placed on your heart to begin a discipling relationship with, but I'm assuming that for most of us, that's the response we're going to get. We're going to have somebody who wants to ease into it, who wants to think about it. Maybe you'll make some spiritual statements like Dr. Looney will train us on this morning And you'll begin having these conversations, and through time, like we talked about last week, it's a process, not an event. You begin this discipling relationship, and maybe it'll look like Nicodemus. But then you get to chapter 4, and then you have another lengthy dialogue uh, between Jesus and what we call the Samaritan woman. Jesus travels through Samaria, 
which I have mentioned several times, so I won't go back over it too much, but Jews and Samaritans had a strong dislike for each other. Their religions were very similar, but had just enough differences to where they just hated each other. Uh, Jews would not travel through Samaria, they would travel around it, but here we find Jesus traveling right through Samaria, and he goes to a water well in the middle of a day. Now, that's where you would go to get your water, And most commentators would tell you that you would go get water probably in the morning or the evening when it's cooler outside. You don't go get water in the middle of the day because it's extremely hot. But Jesus, as he's traveling through, he goes to this water well by himself. And here's this woman. We assume that she's by herself at the water well in the middle of the day because of the life she's living. I don't know. Maybe she's ashamed of something. Maybe she's embarrassed. But for whatever reason, she's there by herself in the middle of the day. She's not there with other moms or other women. She's by herself, and Jesus goes to meet her. And he starts with something very simple. Can you give me a drink? Or maybe it's more of a statement. Give me a drink. And then she's confused by this. You're a man. You're a Jew. I'm a woman. I'm a Samaritan. How can you ask me for a drink? And then Jesus, kind of like with Nicodemus, he uses that as an opportunity to make a spiritual statement And take a turn with the conversation. So he introduces to her, not just physical water, but what he calls living water. That he can offer her water where she'll never be thirsty again. And like Nicodemus, she misinterprets what Jesus is saying. And she says, well, give me this water so I stop going to the well. But that's not what he's talking about. That's not physical water. He's talking about living water. Spiritual water that comes from the spirit that he will send. As they continue to have a conversation, sitting in the middle of the day at this well, Jesus knows some information about her, and he says, you have five husbands, and the man you're with right now is not your husband. That's a strong statement, and if I put some reality behind this conversation, he must have done it in a very loving way, because she didn't slap him for saying it, and she didn't walk away. She continued with the conversation, and then they start talking about worship, which I read when we talked about the five facets. We talked about the importance of worship. We went through that part of the story where Jesus talks about how God is seeking true worshipers who worship in spirit and in truth. But by the end of the conversation, she, she acknowledges, hey, we're all anticipating a Messiah to come. And Jesus says, I am he. She leaves her bucket at the well. She came to get water, but she leaves her bucket, and she goes back to the same village where she's from, the same village full of people that she's probably trying to avoid, and she starts telling everybody, come see a man who can tell me everything I've ever done. Could he be the one? Her response to meeting Jesus was to go tell other people about it. So if this Samaritan woman were to go to Galveston in March and the water's a little bit cold, she's probably just going to go dive in. That's her response. You know what? If this is really the Messiah, if this is really him, I better start telling people about him. Now, Jesus kind of crosses some cultural barriers. She's of a different religion. There are some similarities. But as you see throughout John chapter 4, there's some major differences, especially on where you're supposed to worship. They had differences on what they believed were holy scriptures and what weren't. And the Samaritans had the Torah, but they didn't have the prophets. And, you know, there were some major differences. As I have prayed about who is my one, the person that I believe I'm going to start, that I've written on this card that you'll see in just a little bit, 
Uh, his name, he's a person who is a religious person, but he's not of the Christian religion. So as I look at John chapter 4, I kind of learn from this because I think, how do you have conversations with somebody who's a person of faith, but they don't believe the way that you believe? So who's your one? Is it going to be somebody like the Samaritan woman who's of a different religion, and maybe once they respond, they're all in? Or maybe it's somebody like Nicodemus who needs to ease into it. You need to have more and more conversations. And then you get to John chapter 6. And Jesus has several disciples at this point. In John chapter 6, it starts, John tells us the Passover was near, the Passover was important in John's gospel. And there's all these people, and Jesus feeds them in the wilderness with five loaves of bread and two pieces of fish, and it's a miracle, and they want to force him to become king, and that's not the kind of king he's going to be, so Jesus slips away. And then later in John 6, these crowds find him again, and Jesus calls them out on it. You're here not because you've seen signs, but because you ate and you had your fill. You're here because you got free food. But he uses an opportunity to teach people. you got physical bread that they've eaten, but he starts talking about bread that comes from heaven, spiritual bread. Kind of like the woman at the well, he uses what's physical and what's in front of them to work in some spiritual statements. So he begins talking about how he is the bread that has come down from heaven. He is the living bread, and it's confusing to them. I think Jesus is intentionally difficult in chapter 6, and towards the end of chapter 6, Jesus begins talking about his own flesh and blood, and how his flesh is real food, his blood is real drink, and some of his disciples, not the twelve, but some other disciples that Jesus had, They say, man, this is a difficult teaching. Who can accept something like this? And by the time you get to chapter 6 and verse 66, several of his disciples walk away. They don't want any more of it. They walk away. You know, there's the three options, walk away, ease in, or dive in. Well, they choose to walk away. But then Jesus looks at the 12 apostles and he says, are you going to leave too? And Peter speaks up, as Peter always does, and he says, you have the words of eternal life. You know, where else are we going to go? So Peter's making a statement, we're still in this with you. We're still all in with you. So we see these different responses to Jesus throughout John's gospel. And then we just kind of fast forward to John chapter 11. Uh, This is perhaps the most powerful miracle up until this point when Jesus brings Lazarus back from the dead. Chapter 11 starts with his friend Lazarus is sick. Jesus receives word. He could rush over to Bethany and heal Lazarus before he dies, but instead he waits because he has something in mind, something greater than what they could have imagined. And when he finally arrives in Bethany, Lazarus has died. Jesus has two conversations with Mary and then one with Martha, the sisters of Lazarus. And during these conversations, during a grieving period, They tell Jesus, if you would have just been here, you could have done something about it. And then he, again, uses an opportunity to work in and have a spiritual conversation. And he says, your brother's going to live again. Well, I know, yeah, someday at the resurrection. And then Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. Pretty bold theological statement. Again, Jesus is having an important theological conversation. And just like the woman at the well, it's with a woman which was different for that culture. And then in verse 35, 
This was everybody's favorite memory verse growing up, John eleven thirty five. Anytime I was with a group of kids, if they could choose a memory verse, this is what they would choose. And if you're reading from the NIV, it says two words. What are they? Jesus wept. You knew it. This was your memory verse, too, growing up, I guess. It's the shortest verse in the Bible. Jesus wept. So all I really knew about this verse growing up is it's short. But Jesus is taken to where Lazarus is buried, and he sees the grieving of others, and Jesus grieves with them. He knows what he's about to do. He's going to ask them to roll the stone away, and he's going to call Lazarus out. He's going to put his reputation on the line because everybody's watching, and Lazarus is literally going to come back from the dead. But the fact that Jesus wept even before he did that shows how much he cared about others. Which, if you look at the big picture in the Gospel of John, if you were to just take a glimpse back at John chapter 1 and verse 1, John starts in a poetic way, and he says, in the beginning was the Word, the Logos. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then in John 1.14, he says, the Word becomes flesh and dwells among us. Or Eugene Peterson's version in the message says, the Word becomes flesh and moves into the neighborhood. And then in John 11.35, he weeps, he mourns, he grieves with those who grieve. And I look at God, and I picture God looking at his creation, And if he was going to give one of those three responses, just walk away, or maybe ease in and have one foot in and one foot out trying to decide what he wants to do about his creation, or he could just dive in. And through the incarnation of Jesus and the life and the teachings and the cross and the resurrection, I see in God that he looks at his creation and he says, I'm all in. That's what we see in the life and the teachings of Jesus. So we've encouraged you week after week to... Think of this question to prayerfully consider who is your one? Who is one person that God is calling you to begin a discipling relationship with? We have some men in the back who are about to pass out some cards to you. The cards are going to look just like this. It says, who's your one on it? On the white side, there's a blank line. Uh, These are kind of separated according to how many people are at your row. So grab a card. If you're a visitor with us this morning, you don't have to grab a card. You're probably hearing this for the first time, so don't feel obligated to do this. But for those who are with us, who are some of our members here at Pine Tree, we've asked you to have a name today, a name of someone that you're going to intentionally begin a discipling relationship with, hopefully starting this week after you're trained a little bit. So grab a card and just kind of do this quietly. Grab a pen or a pencil in the pew in front of you. And write the name down of your one. But before you write the name down, let me give you some instructions. We're hoping, we're planning on displaying these cards. After you write the name down and during our invitation, we're going to ask that you place a card in a bucket. And we're going to display these. So if there's somebody that you're going to write on the card that you know they might see it or you don't want to embarrass them, just write their first name down. Or write their initials. But know who you're writing. You don't have to write first and last name if you're afraid they might see it and be embarrassed by it at some point. But write the name down of your one, however you're going to write it, first name, initials, first and last name, but write it down. This is kind of a step in the direction of our commitment to do this, to make disciples here in Longview or the greater Longview area or wherever your one lives So grab that card and write the name down, and then I'll keep the card with you, keep the name, and I'll explain in just a moment what we're going to do with it. Now, as those are being passed out, 
I want to just read a couple more verses as you grab your card, as you write a name uh, from the Gospel of John, since that's where we're at today. There's two verses that as I've dwelled on this and prayed over how this works, what this looks like, there's two verses that have really popped out at me, and I want to read those to you this morning. The first one comes from John chapter 3. You know, we've already read about Nicodemus. You know, Nicodemus who comes to Jesus at night and eases into the light. Well, the second part of John chapter 3, we read about John the Baptist. You know, John the Baptist was the forerunner for Jesus. If you're a football fan and you understand football analogies, John the Baptist was like the fullback and Jesus is the tailback. You know, he's creating the hole for him. John was the cousin of Jesus. He's preparing the way. John has his own disciples. People are following John. John has a pretty good reputation. He's been baptizing people. But at this point in John chapter 3, some of his own disciples are wondering, why is everybody now going to Jesus? So John sees his opportunity, and John sends people in the way of Jesus. And he makes a pretty great statement. I love this in John chapter 3 and verse 30. He says about Jesus, He must become greater, and I must become less. That was his heart. That was John the Baptist. That was his feeling towards this. He knew it's not about me. His whole point, his whole purpose in baptizing people and making disciples was for Jesus. It was to point people to Jesus. So he says, he must become greater and I must become less. As you begin making disciples, as you begin discipling relationship, it's important to keep that in mind. That first of all, this isn't about somebody's ego. This isn't about how great we are at evangelism or making disciples or how many disciples we make. It's not about us. It's about Jesus. And it's important also to remember that we are making disciples of Jesus. We're not making disciples of ourselves. As I begin a discipling relationship with someone, maybe they'll pick up on some Christ-like qualities that maybe I have, but for the most part, I want them to be like Jesus. I don't want them to be a reflection of me. I want them to be a reflection of Jesus. And I look at what John says here, and it reminds me of the importance of he must become greater and I must become less. The second verse I want to draw to your attention comes from John chapter 12. Now, at the beginning of John 12, Jesus enters into Jerusalem. This is the last week of his life. Jesus knows that he is, he's about to die. So he's doing some final teachings as before he washes his disciples' feet. A lot, millions of people have traveled into Jerusalem, including some Gentiles, some Greeks. And so some of them come up to Jesus' disciples. They come up to Philip, some Greeks, some Gentiles, with a request. And they said, Sir, see it on the PowerPoint there in verse 21, we would like to see Jesus. That was their request. We would like to see Jesus. The whole purpose of what we're doing is pointing people to Jesus. I mentioned probably about two months ago when we talked about worship, that it's almost like God created us with this ache in our heart, a longing in our heart for Him. Not everybody realizes what that ache is for, how to fill that longing, but it's almost like we all have this longing to see Jesus. And when people may not even know it yet, but we want to help them see Jesus. And sometimes that might mean I just need to get out of the way and just point them to Jesus. I don't know what that will look like, but people want to see Jesus. 
There was a man named Dwight Moody who was a great preacher and evangelist. Um, This woman came up to him one Sunday after he was preaching, being a little critical, and she said, you know, I don't like the way that you evangelize. And he said, hey, I'm always open open to learning new ways. How do you evangelize? And she said, I don't evangelize. And he said, well, I like the way I do it better than the way that you don't do it. I don't know what you're thinking about these cards or about this who's your one or if this is something that you've really... I've heard back from some of you. I know some of you have been really praying about it and you have a name. Some of you are thinking, all right, this is, this is kind of like easing into the water for me. Like it's a little uncomfortable. My temptation is to just walk back in the sand and do what's comfortable. But what we're asking you to do is to just kind of dive in. For all of us to just be all in with this. So we have four buckets. There's two up here and two in the back. And all we're asking you to do is to take your card with your name. And this is going to be an invitation this morning with a lot of movement, which is great for me. So I'm not just standing up here by myself. But we're going to ask you, as Tony leads the song in just a second, to come up here either to the front or the back and just place your card in the bucket, signifying your commitment to begin this discipling relationship. So we're going to ask everybody to move during this song as we sing. And then after that's over, our elders are going to come up here with these buckets, and they're going to pray over these names. All right, so that's, that's what we're doing for our invitation this morning. We're just asking that we just kind of dive in, and we're all in with this. So if we offer this invitation and you don't move, then that means you didn't listen just now. So remember, grab your card, come to a bucket, and let's do this together. And if you need to respond to the invitation outside of these cards, come up and see me up front or grab a shepherd. But let's do that while we stand and sing.